be here again with all of you. Uh, to this morning, we're going to continue a series that we've been on for the past few months. <clears throat> and it's the series that asks the question, does the Bible really say? And so we've been asking the que- uh, multiple different questions. Does the Bible really say a whole bunch of these certain things? And these phrases are things that, that we often say or, or that we, many of us have believed are actually in the Bible, which, and, and we, so we use the, or, or we just haven't thought about them at all, and so we use them flippantly or easily. And so I don't know about you, but I have particularly enjoyed this series. I, whether there are things that I actually believed that were in the Bible or things I just needed to think about better again, this particular series has spun off into a lot of great conversations for me, whether that's at home with my wife or whether that's in, been in Bible study with a lot of you, it, it's been a great space to, to just talk about what we actually believe, the things that we take for granted. And so today we're going to continue on that, uh, that this, the, down the same line. We're going to ask another question, does the Bible really say? Uh, but this particular week might be a little bit different. Uh, some of these topics we've tackled, there's a flippancy to them, or there's, they're, they, they're important, but they're not, they, they don't necessarily dive down to our cores necessarily all the time. But this one has the potential to hit a little bit closer to home, I think. Uh, when I do, in almost all of my pastoral counseling sessions, not, maybe not all of them, but many of them, the first question that comes up is the one that we're going to be tackling today. It's what so many people who are looking at the gospel or looking at God from the outside wrestle with and probably something that many of you have wrestled with as well. The phrase that we're going to tackle today is, does the Bible really say that everything happens for a reason? Or another way to say that same thing is that everything that happens is part of some, uh, some grander plan of God's. And that's a tough one. Because what makes this phrase a little bit different than the other ones that we've been tackling is that there really are two major ways you could hear that phrase. And the implications of those two different kinds of hearings are actually exactly opposite of one another. What I mean by that is this. Some of you hear the phrase, everything happens for a reason, and it's a great comfort to you. Or you've been through hardships in your life, or maybe you're going through something now, and so you say this phrase and it helps you get through, right? You think, well, I'm in the midst of something really tough right now, but this is all going to be for something better so I can persevere. Right? The belief that things are part of a bigger plan or orchestrated by the hand of God is a comfort to you. It can be a way of trying to understand the evil in this world because we as humans don't like to think that anything is out of control. And so for some of us, it can help us find meaning in difficult situations. And I want to be really clear. I don't want to take any of that from you this morning. But I do want to challenge you to think about it a bit. And in particularly on the second half of the message that we're going to be looking at today. Because as, just as some of you take this phrase as a great comfort, there are others of you out here right now who view this phrase exactly opposite. There are others of you out there today who as soon as you heard this phrase, you cringed a bit. Because for you, if this, is, uh, this, if this phrase is true, that truly everything happens as part of a, the gra- a grand plan of God's, then you are sitting here struggling to understand how God could even be good at all. Right? Because you've experienced things in your life. That if God truly willed them to happen, that if God caused them, or like we like to say, allowed them to happen for some greater purpose, that purpose is lost on you. 
Because you can't imagine how the terrible things that you've gone through could be part of some greater good. Now, there may be times in all of our lives where we feel that same way because there are some, if we take a look, an honest look at our world, we realize that there are some truly horrific things that happen or have happened, right? As we think about the history of the world and we really want to talk about this question, we, we, we're forced then to ask, did the Holocaust happen for some greater good? Or as part of God's plan? What about that young girl that's sexually assaulted or, the, or a baby that dies? Or we could go on and on and on, and I'm sure somewhere out there you all have those examples too. We recognize then that, as, like I said, as people are coming from the outside of the church looking in, this is an incredibly difficult question for them, right? And probably for many of you as well. So then, does the Bible really say that everything happens for a reason or that all, all things happen as a part of this grand plan? Now, it might surprise you. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't, but the, the Bible actually never says this phrase. Actually, the first recorded person to ever say the phrase, everything happens for a reason, was actually the Greek philosopher Aristotle, back before Christ. And the way he thought about it, it was he, he saw the universe as this big interconnected thing and that every time we get knocked down, we have an opportunity to grow and become better for it. Now, he talked a bit about gods because he, he's in the Greek culture, so you talk about Greek gods, but it really didn't have anything to do with religion at all. It was a philosophical idea, which it stayed that way for the primarily, though there were some Christian themes that paralleled it, it stayed primarily as a philosophical idea and it wasn't even really that popular until about the 1800s, believe it or not when it first starts to enter into our church talk. So how then did this phrase become so ingrained in our religious culture and in our understanding of God? And that's what we're going to explore for a bit right here. Now, I think one of the reasons it became so ingrained is that if we look through the Bible, it becomes very clear that some things truly do happen as a direct result of, God, of a plan of God. I'm going to put the next slide up. The, the Bible is very clear that some things happen as a direct result of a plan of God. And, it, and we can see that in a lot of different instances, right? The flood. God has a plan and so the flood happens. Or the, uh, or the exodus from Egypt, the plagues of Egypt, or the, the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus. The, all of those things were part of God's plan and as a direct result, they happened, Right? Clearly throughout history, God has directly impacted things and there are some things that happen as a direct result of God's will for humanity. Clearly. And that theme gets carried on throughout the New Testament as well. If you read in the book of James, James talks about how God will put trials in our life, these obstacles that, are, that's, that help us grow in our faith, that make us stronger. And so an honest read of the Bible, it is clear that some things really do happen as a result of a plan of God. Without a doubt. But that still begs the question then, is that the case with all things? Does everything happen for, the re for a reason? And how we're going to explore that this morning is in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 8, which is 9.16 in the Bible is in front of you if you want to turn there. We're going to look at Romans 8 
beginning at verse 18, and we're going to read all the way through verse 28, but we're going to take it in two sections. So we're going to go from Romans 18 to 25 first, then we're going to pause, and then we're going to take 26 through 28. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8, 18. 9, 16, if you're looking in your Bibles in the pews. Romans 8, 18 says this. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Excuse me. So like I said, we're going to tackle the second half of the passage in just a bit, but it's important for us to take a close look at this first uh, section before we do that. And so there are, there are, there are three things that jump right out, of us, right out at us in this first section. And honestly, the first two especially are not that groundbreaking, are not that mesmerizing. The first thing that we see in this passage is that it's very clear that human suffering exists. Right? Paul says it. He says, I consider my present sufferings not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. He also says that we are groaning for the redemption and restoration of our bodies. That, that human suffering currently exists. Now, we all know that already. Right? None of, nobody's sitting here thinking, no, human suffering is not really a thing. No, of course it is. We look around the world and we can see that very, very clearly. But it's important for us to acknowledge it as we go forward. So the first thing that we see is there's human suffering exists. Second, we see that nature is broken, that natural suffering exists, right? It says that creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, that, it, that it, it's subjected to a frustration that it didn't cause, but we caused to it. It's saying that it's, it's, it's just waiting to be liberated from the bondage that it's in, right? That creation is broken and, and, natural, and as a result, natural suffering occurs. And we know that already, too. That's not, again, that's not all that profound. Right? Because we can look around. We can see that, right? Natural disasters exist. People get sick. People die. Things happen, right? That's natural. There's a natural brokenness. And so the first two things we see are that. The human suffering exists, and then natural suffering exists. But the important thing to notice about both of those things in this passage is the final point. This passage makes it very clear that neither of these things are the way they're supposed to be. Not, neither in us or in nature. Right? It says that the present sufferings will someday be removed. Right? That, that someday we have a hope of something that's coming that's not already here but someday will be. That the suffering that we experience personally will someday be gone. It's not the way it ought to be. 
And this passage is really clear. That's the same thing with creation. It longs for that same restoration. That currently in the world that we live in, there is, there is human suffering and there is natural suffering and neither of those things are the way it's supposed to be. Okay, but how, what does all of that have to do with the plans of God? Well, we see as we look through the Bible that in many, many places, God talks about having plans for us. But what we also see is that when God talks about having plans for us, they are overwhelmingly positive. In Jeremiah, God says, I know the plans I have for you. Right? It's a lot of, a lot of people's favorite verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Right? If you read through the Psalms, you see over and over again that God said, my plan for you is for you to flourish. If you look at the plan for the nation of Israel, that's the case, right? You're going to go into the promised land and it's going to be wonderful for you. It's clear as you read through the Bible, in particularly focusing on the plans of God, that God wants what's best for us. That he wants us to be full and he wants us to be with him and with each other. He doesn't necessarily say his plans will be the easiest for us, but he says they will be the best for us. But as we've just seen, things don't always work out that way, right? And so the question we have to ask is why? Now, if you were going to continue to read through the Bible, that becomes clear as well, and it's clear in this passage as well. Why aren't things the way they're supposed to be? Well, it's because we exist. Because God's given us free will, and honestly, we aren't all that good at listening to God, are we? which is what we're going to explore for the rest of this message. Because if we look at the world, we see that most of the suffering in it comes from us treating one another poorly, doesn't it? And the, resu- and the rest comes from the result- as a result of natural brokenness. Now, we do need to unpack that for a minute because the first thing that many people think there is, hold on a minute, is it, you just said that things are broken because we exist, but isn't God in control of everything? Well, of course, you read through the Bible, that's very clear. God is the ruler of all things. He, he, he's over all things and he has the power to control or influence anything that he desires. Over and over again in both the Old and the New Testament, we see this to be true, which is where our dilemma rises, isn't it? Everything that happens, in one sense, is under God's control. Nothing happens outside of the God's sphere of control. And yet, does that mean that he causes all things to happen? Or that everything that, he, that happens is what he wanted? How does that relate to human choice and free will, is where our dilemma sits. Or one other question that we could ask is, can we affect God's plans negatively? Now, I think if you were going to read through the Bible, I think that you would see that it says we can do just that. That we can affect God's plans negatively. Let me give you an example. If you know the story of Israel, they're in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And so God does the whole plague thing and gets them out. They go across the Red Sea. And what is God's plan for them in that space? Well, they were supposed to walk across the Sinai Desert, to, the, to Mount Sinai. They do well there. They get there. They get the Ten Commandments. Then they're supposed to move on, and very shortly afterwards, they're supposed to enter into the land of Canaan, right? 
They actually create this spy. They send in 12 spies into the land of Canaan. They send them in, and they're going to go scout the land in order to conquer it. That was the point. But 10 of those spies come back, and they say, these people are humongous. There's no way we can win. Now, two of them come back and say, yeah, we're all right. We'll be fine, Jacob and, or, um, Joshua and Caleb. But what happens? The Israelites decide to listen to the 10, right? And they're too scared to go in. God's plan was for them right in that space to take the land of Canaan. The Israelites reject that plan, and what happens? As a result, they have to spend 40 more years in the wilderness, right? The Israelites' choice negatively affected the plan of God. Now, we can continue that on as well. So after the 40 years, the Israelites actually go into the land of Canaan. And God says over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy and Exodus that his, when you get there, my plan is to make you flourish. That, I'm going to, I'm going, that I want to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. I want to, if you follow me, then we're going to have rain and season. Your crops are going to grow. You're going to get every seventh year off. That you're going to be a light to the world. That I'm going to live with you. That you're never going to lose a battle. That he wanted to bless them beyond their wildest imaginations. That was God's plan. And yet, if you read through the book of Judges, even like the first three chapters of Judges, you realize that doesn't work out that way, does it? Because the people reject God's plan over and over and over and over again. And as a result, they have to deal with the consequences of that. It seems as we read through the Bible, God often sets a path for people that they decide not to take, which always causes them unneeded hardship. And so how does all of that then relate to God being in control? An analogy that's been particularly helpful for me is this. Imagine life is like a river, a very, very big, broad river. It always flows in the same direction, but there are banks on either side of the river, borders or barriers, if you will. Think of those banks like God's hands. The river is guided and controlled by the banks or the hands in this case. Nothing can get out that's not supposed to, and in this case, nothing can get in that's not supposed to. The river of life cannot go outside the banks It's under God's control. And yet, there's space to move within that river, right? Now, as we go down the river, there is a best way to go, a way with fewer rocks or drop-offs or whirlpools or whatever may come, whatever trouble may come down a river. Think of that way as God's plan for your life, the way that God wishes you to go, the best way. God points, out, points us in the direction that we ought to go. He gives us the best path, but he also gives us the freedom to decide whether we want to take that or not. We can paddle down the path laid out for us. Or we can choose to, weigh, uh, to weave our way across the river and experience whatever consequences come there. The path might look easier this way, and then once we get over that little bend, we realize we're running right into a waterfall, right? We can cause ourselves a lot more hardship than was ever intended, but let's be clear, though. Not everything we experience in our lives is a result of something we did. That's because we're not in the river alone. Your choice to deviate from the best way may affect someone else as well. Your going off course may cause you to smash right into the side of somebody minding their own business, right? Or you might be minding your own business and you get smashed into by somebody who's way off course. And we've experienced that a lot in our lives, haven't we? 
where you're like, well, who caused this to happen? Well, it was someone not doing what they were supposed to be doing. And you might have been doing exactly what you were supposed to be doing. It's clear in the first section of Romans that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. We as humans are naturally sinful. We, we don't walk the path that God has laid out for us and like the, like the Israelites didn't as they entered the land of Israel. We try to forge, forge our own ways and as a result, we cause ourselves and others a whole lot of hardship. Because the fact of the matter is the pain in this world is caused by two things. One, by us being terrible to each other. People hurting one another. But we also see in this passage that's not it. The pain in this world also comes from a natural brokenness. We as humans do a lot to cause one another, one another pain. And the rest is experienced because the world is broken. Not because of something that it did, but because we dragged it down with us. Because God's plan for nature was the Garden of Eden, right? And we kind of wrecked that. So now, at the beginning of this message, we talked about how there are two ways to approach this phrase. Now, those of you who came into here having a hard time accepting that everything happens for a reason, this first part probably resonated with you a little bit more. You're like, yeah, okay, I get, I, I, that makes sense to me, hopefully, unless I messed it up real bad and it doesn't make sense to anybody. But that first part, hopefully, it probably resonates with you a little bit more. But, the, but, the, but those of you who took comfort in this phrase are a little worried because up until this point, we painted a pretty bleak picture of the world up until now, haven't we? Because if we were to leave things here, it would seem that God is pretty hands-off in our life, that he kind of gets us a boat, sets us down, says, go that way, now go, and just watches. And that's not all that comforting, is it? It's, all, it's also not all that biblical, which is why we're glad Romans 8 doesn't stop at verse 25. It keeps on going. So if you've got your Bibles, open up again to Romans 8, 26. Which says this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, if we were to stop before verse 26, and if we were to see a world without God, there would be bleakness. It would be bleak. It would be tough. The world would seem meaningless or hopeless. And actually, you can see people wrestle with that, don't they? But as we see in this passage, with God, there's promise. You see, God knows that, there's going to be, that life is going to bring us trouble. Jesus himself actually even said those words, in this life you will have trouble. God knows that we're going to make bad choices that are going to cause us a lot of pain. And we're going to be affected by others who make bad choices or by nature that will also cause us pain. God knows that life can get us down. It can make us weak. It can confuse us, confound us, leave us feeling lost or disillusioned. Which is why he's given us his spirit. 
It says in this passage, when we're weak, the promise of verse 26 is that when we're weak, the Spirit is there with us. The promise of this passage is that when we're so off course that we don't even know what to say to get back, the Spirit himself prays for us, that he groans with us, which is a pretty amazing thing to think about it if you really stop and do that. This passage says when we don't even understand the depths of our pain, when we can't even express where the hurt is coming from or who or what or whatever's going on and what we're mad about, it says when we search our hearts, we realize that the Spirit is there as well already, ready and waiting to help us through, to intercede on our behalf. You see, the promise of the Bible is not that every bad thing happens that every bad thing that happens is what God wanted for your life. The promise of the Bible is that when, when, when bad things happen as a result of sin, not God, the promise of the Bible is that he is there with you. Which is what it means to be blessed. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. When you're in your life and you can't seem to find God, when you're looking all over the place and you're just not feeling it, Right? Like David in Psalm 13, how long will you hide from me, O Lord? When you struggle to be filled with spirit or you feel like you're lacking or you're poor in spirit, the promise of the Bible is that God is there. The promise of the Bible is that when you mourn, when you cry, when you feel empty or sad or lost, the promise is that God's there with you too, crying right alongside of you just like Jesus did with Martha. The, prom- the promise of the Bible is when you don't feel like you're strong enough to push back on something that needs to be pushed back against, when you feel meek or small, the promise is that God is right there with you. When you're in space where you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, when you look around and it feels like everything's all wrong, it's not just or right, and, and though you long for it, you just can't seem to reach it, the promise of the Bible is that God is right there with you. You see, bad things happen because sin exists, because we have an enemy that's actively trying to get us to fall, because we give in to temptation and pride and greed and rage and lust, and we could continue to go on and on and on with that. We reject the path that God has laid out before us, and we get off course. But that leads us into the most amazing part of the whole story. That when we're lost, when we're off course, when we think we've screwed things up worse than they could ever be put back together, then verse 28 comes and it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's pretty unbelievable. You see, everything might not happen according to the way God would have liked it. We may reject this path because of the gift of free will that he, free will that he gave us But we see here that no matter how badly we've messed it up or how much pain we've caused ourselves or caused other people, this passage promises that God can and will work to redeem all things. That as we lean into God, he takes the very thing that caused us pain and works it towards our good. Sure, God may have not wanted us to go down that path, but now that we have, he will make the best of it. And we can see that true to be true in the world, right? I don't think God wants anybody to become addicted to a substance. But people walk down that path. And when they choose to come out of it, what do we see? That the person that comes out of that space 
is the best equipped to help other people out of that space. The brokenness that took them into the place that they were in actually gets used to help other people be less broken. That's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? Every time the devil tries to knock someone down, God takes that very thing and raises it up to higher than it used to be. And that same thing is true for you. God may not have wanted that event in your life to happen, but if you lean into him, he can and he will redeem it. He can actually use the very thing that's causing you pain to raise you up higher than you were before. Now granted, that might not happen instantaneously. It might not remove all the pain or the scars, and it might take a really long time, but if you trust in God, he will take what was meant to destroy you and actually use it to not only advance you, but his kingdom as well. So, does the Bible really say that everything happens for a reason? If what we mean by that is that everything happens exactly the way that God wanted or intended for it to, for some greater purpose, no, the Bible doesn't say that. It does say that everything exists within the bounds of God's control. That's true. He created the banks of the river. But he's also given us freedom to make real choices. And with that freedom, we can choose to follow God or reject him. And there are real consequences for both of those choices. And if we choose poorly, sometimes those consequences are very difficult ones. You see, we hurt one another. We reject the path of God. We make things much more difficult and painful than they ever needed to be. And we're also subject to the brokenness of nature itself, a nature that groans right alongside of us for redemption. So does the Bible really say that all of this is according to God's plan? No, but that doesn't mean there isn't an amazing promise. The promise of the gospel is not that God is orchestrating all this pain. No, the promise of the gospel is that when we experience the consequences of a fallen humanity and a fallen world, the promise of the gospel is that God is right there with us every time. That he cares. That in the height of our brokenness, the Holy Spirit himself speaks on our behalf. That he's right there crying alongside of us. The Bible does not promise that all pain is planned for some greater good, but the Bible does offer us the amazing promise of redemption from all pain. In this life, we will have pain. We will have hardship. We have a devil that's trying to destroy us. God doesn't promise that all of that is for some greater reason. But in his overwhelming love for us, he does promise that sin never gets the final word. God promises that when we get knocked down, that when we're struggling to understand it all, that when we feel lost and alone, that his promise is that when the devil tries to take you out, that if you draw near to him, the very things that were meant to destroy you will be redeemed will be restored and ultimately be used for good. Friends, God doesn't use evil and brokenness to accomplish a greater good, but he does work in spite of it. Redeeming those things that hurt so badly in order that all things ultimately are worked out for the good of those who love him. Amen. You pray with me. Father God, there are some of us here today who are hurting, who are wrestling, who are trying hard to understand why certain things happen. God, I pray that we all pray that you meet them in that space, that they can understand that you're there, that you mourn alongside of them, that you care, that you love them, that the pain they experience now won't be like that forever.
that there's a hope that's coming, but there's also a restoration that's currently here. And we pray that they can see that in their lives. Help each of us see that as we go through the difficulties in our life, that you're always there with us. Give us that peace. Give us that comfort. And help us express that to the rest of the world. Amen.